Hi, I'm Lauren. My pronouns are she, her, and this is Demyth Turns the Page, our special episodes where we resist and sow chaos, we protect and enforce the law, and we take counsel with our warden, Sarah El-Arifi. So hi, Sarah. It's so weird to be meeting you virtually after all this time of face-to-face events. <laughs> hi, it's, it's such a pleasure to be here. I know that we've, um, yeah, we, I've, I've, I feel like I've been on the London circuit for like the last few months. So I, I've met everyone who can read. <laughs> That's how it feels. <laughs> and I remember how excited I was. I saw this book on table. This is before I'd read it. And it was a suggestion from Waterstones that people should read it for a sapphic summer. Here we are having a sapphic September. I know, I actually can't believe it's September, but yeah, I'm loving sapphic September. Let's uh, let's just keep the sapphic theme going throughout the year. Let's have a sapphic October, <laughs> sapphic November. I'm happy. <laughs> so I've been so excited to talk to you, but can you first please introduce yourselves to our listeners who might not know who you are? Absolutely. Hello, everyone. I'm Sarah Elarifi. I'm the author of The Final Strife, which is um, an adult adult epic fantasy, um, which came out in June. Uh, it's my debut and it's very exciting to, you know, be a published author for the first time. It's uh, amazing to do stuff like this as well. And uh, yeah, so my, my story is um, based on Arabian myths and um, kind of West African Ghanaian folklore. Uh, it's all about my heritage and then also kind of confronting colonization. So it's an interesting one. Um, and I've had some great response from readers and which has been amazing. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm just chuffed that my story is out in the world. I'm sure the answer to this is going to pretty much be all of your super talented friends. But what kind of books do you like to read? So I spent a good, <laughs> a good, I'd say 50% of my life reading um, exclusively white male authors, which I didn't really realise at the time that's what I was doing. It was just what was commercially, you know, marketed to me. I was reading epic fantasy from a really young age. Um, and, you know, there's still some wonderful stories that I read, but it was when kind of getting into my 30s that I realised I, I really needed to diversify and, and look at look at myself in the mirror and really kind of accept who I was it taken me nearly 30 years to kind of come to terms with being (laughs) being black and um which sounds I I just every time I say that I'm like that sounds ridiculous but it's so true and I think in realizing that I came to love my heritage who I was and then also diverse stories and it just it filled me with a rage of why is it that the most commercially marketed stories are often in specifically epic adult fantasy or always white men telling these stories and um and so I guess now the kind of stories that I read um I'm really really trying to to trying to keep diversifying um N.K. Jemison was one of my first loves uh Toni Morrison Octavia Butler there are so many out there um and yeah so that's 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 what I like to read now and what is it that's drawn you to epic fantasy? The possibility of it all, I think, um, as a genre, two things really. So the the one is definitely the possibility. It's it's just endless. Like there is so much you can create in epic fantasy. It is <laughs> is as it says on the title, it's epic. Um, so I'm absolutely. I just love just letting my imagination go completely wild, which it does. On the flip side, the genre, like I said, is so is it. It isn't. It isn't necessarily entirely white, but the the books that are pushed in you know commercial spaces are often white, and so that was one of the reasons that I actually actively decided to write in that genre to push my own agenda, <laughs> my own black agenda. So um, yeah, I think that was it was an active choice in in approaching it as well. We definitely need more people pushing that agenda. Yeah, people from more marginalized groups. I agree, and it starts. It starts from publishing. Yeah, it starts from publishing. It starts from the inside of publishing houses. It's it's them that need to be pushing that agenda, um, not necessarily on the authors. So I'm just really amazed and lucky that I got the opportunity to do so on such a big scale. Hopefully, now books like yours that are coming out and people want to read them. I mean, your book has been so well received. That must 
send a message to publishers that like hang on a minute there's epic fantasy written by a black woman and people really like it maybe we should try this again yeah and I, I will say there is no one more shocked that how well my book's been received than me <laughs> um because when I was writing it I was like no one's gonna buy this book it's uh it's so angry it's so in your face um and yeah I I just there's a lot of a lack of follow-through I find with um at the moment with the wave of um kind of new new age epic fantasy where publishers are starting to get behind diverse voices I find that sometimes they pay a big lump sunny lump of money up front but then they don't actually follow through in terms of marketing so um I think it's I'm I'm really pleased and I hope that I'm seen as an example going forward of that actually if you support a book it has got legs it can go further I hope so but you shouldn't be shocked I mean your book is so good oh well, thanks I don't do compliments well I kind of like squirrel up and I'm like oh, oh is it okay maybe <laughs> we might have some awkward moments in the interview then I'll try not to gush too much <laughs> but this isn't your responsibility but the cover the cover's so pretty I know I'm I have been blessed with two very amazing covers I think um and two totally different ones what I love about the UK cover is that it's so very obviously epic fantasy like it's like you see it on the shelf and you're like oh that's fantasy and on the flip side what I love about the US cover it's the exact opposite it's like this is not does not look like fantasy but it is and I think both of them do very different things in the market but I'm so lucky to have on one side a black woman on the cover and on the other a cover that actually merges into the genre really well um so yeah I'm and also all the foil oh my goodness that's amazing and your book has all of the good stuff that I like about books we have a map so you can visualize what you're seeing a glossary for people who are maybe a bit more intimidated by the fact that it is epic fantasy and some you can see the blood work runes as well at the back yeah and they feel very Arabian so yes did you help to create them or have some kind of input into them yes yes I did all of it um I I say I did all of it I did not illustrate anything um just to be very very clear um we had uh, a wonderful illustrator Kingsley Nabechi um who did the illustration of the map which was based on my illustration which I had done within Incarnate which is a D&D map creator tool um so I'd spent many hours mapping out the the entire entirety of the Warden's Empire um and then in terms of uh the glossary that was quite painful but <laughs> because I had my own glossary which was like it's something like 25 pages long and it was not reader facing at all um it was chaos I was like no one should ever look at this glossary it's for me and for me alone and my editors were like I think it would be really nice if we had a glossary and I was like oh man and to be fair the one in the book I still think is like 16 pages but anyway it's in there and I I think there's some really nice touches like having the pronouns against characters which is really important to me Um, and then the runes themselves yes I drew them um based on the Arabic alphabet um with obviously some changes because I didn't want it to look like Arabic calligraphy but um yes it's 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 based on some scrolls that I drew (laughs) I I just love all of the extra effort you've gone in with all of these these little details I think it's it's really cool so just to introduce listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the book before we do actually get into proper book related questions the empire rules by blood Red is the blood of the elite, of magic, of control. Blue is the blood of the poor, of workers, of the resistance. Clear is the blood of the servants, of the crushed, of the invisible. The Yaktibar, a set of trials held every 10 years to find the next ember rulers of the empire, is about to begin. All can join, but not just anyone can win. It requires great skill and ingenuity to become the future wardens of strength, knowledge, truth, and duty. Sila was destined to win the trials and be crowned warden of strength. Stolen by blue-blooded rebels, she was raised with a duster's heart, forged as a weapon to bring down from within the red-blooded embers regime of cruelty. But when her adopted family were brutally murdered, those dreams of a better future turned to dust. However, the flame of hope may yet be rekindled because Sila wasn't made to sparkle 
she was born to burn. And now it's up to her whether she rules the empire or destroys it. One thing for me that really stands out about the book is how, so all of the characters in the book are black, but then society is divided by blood color. And I thought that was a really interesting idea. So can you talk to us a little bit about why you made that decision? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there were lots of reasons why it kind of, why I chose to go down that path. One of them was, I think it's it's a really interesting take on colorism. Um, obviously, different shades of skin have have different privileges in life. And I think um, basically taking the, 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 the essence of colorism and actually just turning it into blood color is really interesting to me. On the flip side, I think I was actively looking at how race is formed how we decide race based on random categories because at the end of the day race is not biological it's not based on anything we have just chosen around the dawn of kind of nationalism and nation states we decided as a world as a society that race was skin color we decided that People who had a certain colour of skin belonged to a category because we had to make sense of the world, so we made categories. We could have decided that it was eye colour. We could have decided that it was hair colour. We could have decided it was size of feet. We could, you know, it could have actually been anything. And um, then thinking about why, as a society, that happened, I kind of started to think about okay well what about in a society where you couldn't necessarily see that blood color but that was the categorization and how you could then move within that world without an obvious marker apart from obviously the ghostings who have their hands um, and tongues severed without those physical physical traits of someone being able to see directly how else would the societal changes affect you as that race so um, would it be you perceived the other person because of the clothes they wear or, um, you know, th- there was just a lot of a lot of consideration that went into it that kind of developed this caste system. And it just felt right in the world that I was creating. And it just sparked com- conversation <laughs> with myself <laughs> and the voices in my head, um, conversation with myself and kind of debates that I knew I could see that were going to be sparked from it that just, yeah, it just worked in that sense I was like I knew this is something that I want to explore. Did you have much of a research process because obviously you've got the you've got the main story but then you also include chapters from history books, speeches, journals, all this kind of good stuff and obviously you created that all yourself. Yeah so I talk about how there's kind of two research phases for this book there were um, and I will say first off I always do kind of a zero draft that is ugly as hell (laughs) it's just like garbled nonsense I just try to get to the end of the book to know what I know the actual arcs are going to be of the story um because I don't really know what's going to happen until it physically comes out of my fingertips I'm like oh oh goodness okay so that blood color exists um so it very much is for me that kind of first creative process is a no research zone and just feelings (laughs) feelings and no research um and then when I kind of re-evaluate the world, I very much look at what I wanted to research in the real world and what I wanted to research in the world I had created. And that might sound weird, but it was true. I had to research in the world I created. So from a world real world perspective, I spent a lot of time reading up on um, colonisation. Um, I happened to be also doing uh, a master's degree in Af- African studies, um, which really helped Um, build out the later edits as I was going through the book. I spent a lot of research and time in Belgian Congo discovering the atrocities of King Leopold II which really impacted the book. The concept of nation states, there was a lot that I spent time in real world history books and then also looking at the silence in in those history books, those those missing accounts of people who didn't get a chance to speak their truth. And that was something that was really important to me to be able to find in the world of this final strife, even though it's absolutely a work of fiction. How do I then develop a a sense of truth for those people who didn't have a history? And then on the other side is the world I created and the research that I did there. So I would literally sit down and I would go, okay, 
well, how does an iru iru work? And an iru iru is a um, a rideable lizard, and that's <laughs> that took me a really long time because uh, if you ever look at how a lizard actually walks, it's a uh, its its tail wiggles a lot and its bub butt wiggles a lot and it's really difficult to figure out how a carriage would actually work with that so I spent a long time developing how the engineering of a carriage would work with a lizard I then spent a lot of time developing the floor like flora and the fauna of the world um, I wrote the entire education system uh, the sewage system I knew how um, post was uh, developed in the world um, a postal service was de- developed I knew the history I knew 400 years of history I knew the government positions um, all of that wasn't a kind of oh it just came to me I had to actively sit and write out every single element to make sure that the world was as rich as it could be I've had you talk about this this next question before but I think it's so fascinating and for people who haven't had the opportunity to hear you talk about it I think they should but so we have the ghostings who are have been mutilated. They have no hands and no tongue, but you've given them language. So how did you how did you do that? So this is um, really interesting to me because I I talked about brief, briefly before how I wanted to bring voice to those who are silent, and um, the ghostings were always silent in the world that I created. But I was very I wanted to actively fight against kind of this caste system that I'd created because in my own world, I could, I was potentially writing, um, you know, in in my first draft, the ghostings had very little part to play, which in its own sense, I was being a little bit racist. (laughs) So I had to actively fight against that own internal racism to give ghostings a voice. And so when I was developing the sign language that I wanted them to have, so like I said, they have, they've had their hands mutilated and their tongue severed. So as a means to cut off their language. And so but what I wanted to do was obviously give them a voice. So I wanted a case study in which I could base the sign language on because the thing with ASL and BSL, a lot of it is hand-based. And I found this case study of a village in Ghana where um, it was, it's a population of about 350 people. They have all been born with a genetic disorder, which means they're deaf. It's a tribal community, so they don't have access to mainstream internet or um, television service or anything like that and they have developed their own sign language which by the way isn't uncommon there is a lot of indigenous sign languages that exist in the world but what's really interesting about this one was that it was 60 percent foot-based which was perfect for me I could actually look through and um, lift the way that they would say certain words and use them in the development of the sign language that I was using in the book so when there is a reference to the movements that are being used by the ghostings um, it is directly researched and based on this this village in Ghana which um, was a, a it was really a wonderful find and also a really fascinating find I thought this is an incredible to be able to to also in its small way give give meaningful voice to to non-ASL and BSL speakers so um yeah that's that's kind of where that research came from I think it's so fascinating why did you choose the guilds that you chose so we have duty truth knowledge strength and then we have the unofficial guild of crime obviously this is so interesting because I've actually never been asked this question before and honestly when I think about it I'm like where did I where did these come from (laughs) it was I think when I was developing the world, I knew that there had to be certain certain pillars of community that I wanted represented. So knowledge, I definitely want an education to have a big part because of its 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 import of the 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 development of the world, which we can talk to talk about in the spoiler section. But education is really important to talk about. So knowledge was always going to be there. Truth again, equally spoiler free but it's important to have that maintained duty we needed someone who was going to maintain the world and look after the sewers and the plantations and stuff like that and strength I knew that Sila was always going to be a character who was training for the the guild of strength so that was it it was the sense of I, I knew there was going to be someone so physically powerful like Sila is though mentally less so shall we say I think she does gain her power in, in, in a mental capacity, but she very much starts 
at the beginning of the world, and I use this word term lightly because I think it's overused, but she is broken in, term, in, in a certain way. And I think that was something that I really wanted to explore, like the f- physical strength versus the the non-physical. Um, and crime actually was at one stage um, guild of uh, mischief because uh, there is... So loot is very loosely based on um, Anansi. So there was something mischievous about um, Anansi the spider. And I really thought that was quite interesting to have guild of mischief but the more i thought about it the more i felt it was too whimsical um and i i landed on um guild of crime and we start the book knowing that there are going to be some trials coming up very soon for some new wardens and why why do they do this is it to freshen up leadership or so um essentially it was a tradition based on uh a small rebellion that happened within the ember class so um the embers were very frustrated that um four rulers had chosen to be the rulers of the world and so they came to a decision that would be a competition every 10 years um the first ever competition the four sorry the the four runners up became the disciples so it was a consolation prize essentially for the disgruntled embers who wanted to be able to get into government and it was decided um 10 years was a good length of time in order to allow for that government to have a refresh and so for me it was it was interesting because i was thinking about you know terms in our government i wanted it to be stricter um i wanted it to be longer because it is a totalitarian regime. So I did want it to be a, it's difficult to topple them. So 10 years for me was just the right amount of time as well. And I guess this isn't really a spoiler and we can talk about it because it happens really early on in the book. But the ripping, you you like to make an impact. Oh yeah. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think the rippings for me was I wanted something so visceral and um, it is a practice that happened um, throughout time, actually. Um, uh, lots of empires use, use this form of torture. Um, and there's something so awful about the idea of someone being literally ripped alive and hearing their cartilage being popped. <laughs> I just had to put it on the page. I'd, I'd be terrified to do anything wrong yes exactly and that's the, it's that fear that the wardens rule by do people actually enjoy go i know obviously i mean people are cruel but i can't see why you'd want to go and watch that absolutely people will watch that people do did even go and make an event of it um the upper classes of of many many monarchies and, and many um empires have made execution a sport oh it's so horrible yeah it's wild was this the kind of default punishment for anything even remotely serious no so um whippings are actually the 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 go-to it's very serious crimes such as um if you if a a cast color has sex with anyone outside of their their blood color they are that's a, a ripping offense if um stealing and you know uh any form of murder or uh, violence that's a ripping offense writing for dusters or ghostings is a ripping offense um though whippings is also used but yeah probably is the go-to actually (laughs) oh so horrible this is the point of the episode where the warden of the guild of truth has blessed us with the right to talk spoilers if you haven't read the book go and read now as we do discuss the ending and we aren't responsible what you'll find out. I guess I'm just going to jump straight in here now we're in spoilers with Jond. I didn't trust him for a really long time. Like the moment he wouldn't or couldn't talk about the Samstorn's plans, I was like, hmm, I don't trust you. Yeah. But why would he not just be honest with her if he loves her as much as he suggests? Also, the thing he wrote in the helmet, for me, that was going to, that's too much. Like you're laying it on a bit thick here. So Jond, I love Jond and so many people, it's a love-hate thing, but I love him. And there was, I, I always remember I had, um, very early on, we had a lot of interest from film and TV and one of the producers that um, was interested in the, the book said to me, Jond is like the hero, the anti-hero of the entire book. He stands by his principles through and through. And I was like, that's so interesting. First of all, that a man read it that way. And second of all, that was the main kind of hero that he took out of the book. 
And I quite liked it because I was like, it is true. Like John, John's fault is that he's loyal. And um, is that really a fault? Actually, I'm not sure because he's, he stands by what he believes. And, and though he loves her, he does not want to, you know, he doesn't, he does not want to at all jeopardize the sandstorm because he is so indoctrinated. She's had years away from them. He has been with them his entire life it is he lives and breathes he thinks that he cannot like literally do anything to affect the way the sandstorms plan has to come has to go about I still think he could have told her maybe oh yeah but then we'd have no story no I think I I do think I stand by the fact that he he just wouldn't he just wouldn't I think he'd want to and I think he definitely pleaded with um, Master and Nancy, I, I'm sure that he pleaded with Lute many, many times to tell her. But I would, if I also was, I was, if I was Lute, and you've had this woman that you've been keeping an eye on for four years, who has not been supporting the agenda of the Sandstorm, I wouldn't let her back in. She'd have to prove herself, and I think that's that's when you go into the shoes of each character and you think, oh yeah, actually. That would that would pan out. <laughs> I guess because I like her so much, I kind of forget what a car crash she is. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, she's a hot mess. Yeah, total hot mess. Also, like talking about truth, I was also waiting for her for Silas to tell Anur the truth about who she was, and it the moment she finally tells her, oh my god, it was tense. Yeah. Finally, all this book we've been waiting. Think right. So we know who Sila is. She's Uka's daughter, and eventually she's going to tell Anur. And then three pages later, the bombshell that she's not actually. <laughs> I was so shocked. That's probably my favourite reveal of the entire book because there's no one that's seen that coming yet that I've spoken to. Um, even though the clues are there from the beginning, the description of um, of Fareen very early on, the sister that is actually Uka's daughter, is described like a lot earlier in the book than you'd expect. And... Um, I think that, yeah, there's there's something really, really joyful. I'm a little bit like smug about it that no one sees it coming because I didn't see it coming. She honestly, Sila, as I was putting her to page, was always Uka's daughter, always, until I literally decided as I was writing, no, she's not. I'm going to fight against that trope. She is not only the chosen one, she's nothing to do with any of the wardens in power. And I remember my editor's like, lost their shit <laughs> they were like what this is insane and I, I yeah I really I really uh love that twist because I knew before I started reading the book that it's about a chosen one who's not really a chosen one so I was like okay cool so Sila's the chosen one and then she can't go to the trial and prove herself I was like okay cool so Anur's the chosen one that makes sense because she's a duster uh no well kind of but also she wasn't Uka's daughter so it's just a thing on so many levels oh my god yeah, there there isn't really a chosen like I guess the three of them together like Hassa, uh, maybe Hassa of all of them really mm. is that chosen one because it's it's Hassa and Nur and Sila the three of them together maybe they are all pieces of a chosen one potentially, um, but no I I was really fighting against that trope. That was a good decision. I literally dropped the book. I was so shocked. <laughs> I don't think you're going to answer this. Um, you might not even answer it in book two, but Loot, we assume Loot is a duster and he's got yellow blood. He does. We, we know nothing about this. Can you, te- can you tease anything about the fact he has this blood colour we didn't even know existed? You will learn all in book two. Okay. It all, it's all revealed within the first third of book two. I'm assuming he comes from somewhere outside of the empire of the Wardens. Well, you can assume that. I do. But <laughs> maybe it's, it's it's perfectly reasonable that I'm going to be proved wrong. I know that they leave the island. I know that that happens from, yes, from they me do. talking at a book event. So it's yes. possible. But if not, then I'm excited. Yes, it is. It is. I I really loved book two. It is really fun. Yeah, my editors really love book two too. So I was like, okay, so it's not total crap. Um, 
because there's always this like weird disconnect between a writer and their words because like you ask me what I think the final strife I'll be like well it's an okay book (laughs) but then with book two I was like this feels good this feels like I'm on the right track this like feels like the story that it was always meant to be and then I'm like what if I'm so wrong (laughs) but then thankfully my editors said it was good so um I think their exact words were uh this is this is more epic and better than book one so um which is very exciting to me because I hope I hope people will enjoy it as much as I enjoyed writing it but yes it is definitely more epic and uh we do go outside of the empire and we do learn about the yellow bloods and there's a sea monster as well there is a sea monster well the sea monster is teased yes in book one where yes. We saw this sort of a question that I sort of have a bit later, but yeah, we we know that there's a sea monster that exists outside of the empire that eats eats people. Yes. <laughs> so I'm sure you've got a really intelligent answer for this because oh, it, I wouldn't it, assume that ever. <laughs> <laughs> but we have loads. There's loads of different sort of subplots in the book, and one of them it starts with a map that Scylla finds and. She's sort of like, oh, what if there was something outside the Empire? But then the map is ripped. And then later, she gets the second piece from Hassa. And between Sila and Anor, they both start to overhear little nuggets of information. And then they find out that there is this whole other Empire out there mm-hmm. beyond, beyond their island. And actually, where they're living used to be ghosting territory, and they just killed them. So why, why do they want to bury that idea so badly? So you mean the wardens, why do they want to hide the fact that it's native land? Why do the wardens, yes. Why do the wardens want to so badly bury that idea? So there is more, I, I, there's a slight spoiler in book two, so I won't, I won't say that. But there is, the, we also see this kind of, um, this technique for uh, kind of assimilation used in the real world where indigenous cultures are suppressed we saw it in south africa and we've seen it in many many african countries where an empire has come in occupied the land and then continually to continue to suppress language traditions religions culture or they have adopted it and changed it which the wardens actually did with um anyeme the the religion in the wardens empire which is actually based on an indigenous practice in ghosting in with native ghostings so it's actually directly lifted from history i think from a real world perspective it gives power and i think this is what i was kind of saying earlier about education it's all about controlling who knows what and by removing and erasing history you can control pretty much anything you can control the narrative if you can keep ghostings quiet, you can remain in power. The embers can remain in power. They can own that narrative because if dusters, which who actually outnumber any other blood color, if um, if they knew that the that if if they knew that they could blood work, for example, there'd be an entire new rebellion. So I think it's it's quite important for the wardens to control that narrative. And I would say it's a slow going, like, yes, it's 421 years since the first wardens um, reigned. They, the process of assimilation was slow, but also quick because it's 421 years. It's not actually that long. Although the population grows in a huge amount in that time, um, which yes, I do have population graphs of the wardens empire. Um, There is, (laughs) there is still this, um, you know this 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 need for control and power which is absolutely developed through assimilation and silence can imagine you there making graphs like it's gcse statistics i mean i didn't do gcse statistics because i wasn't good enough at maths so thankfully i didn't have to do it oh my goodness like oh i can't do maths at all i can't do maths at all but the the I, I nearly broke my brain when I was like, okay, so a thousand people settle on the land. So what would be the population now? So what would be the population if they had this many babies and this many deaths? And oh my goodness, it was it was a long few days. <laughs> so how much were they shagging, basically? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's for the good of the population. 
yeah, it, they had a very healthy population increase in 421 years. I'll tell you that much. It's, it's good. It's, it's what you have to do. Do, if you, do it for the good of your people. No other reason. Embers can blood work. We, we know this. And we then find out that it was the ghostings that taught them. Anur could blood work as well, but she'd been threatened to, to not reveal that she could. Do you think that there would be a way for ghostings who had been through this mutilation process to do it again if, if they could find someone who could make some kind of adaptive tool? Because so much in the world has been adapted, like dustpans and trays and all this stuff. You mentioned yeah. it's all been adapted. Yeah, I would say that there is nothing that a ghosting can't do. So Hassler actually says this in, in the, the novel. There's nothing that a ghosting can't do except thread a needle. And I stand by that statement. And you'll see more in book two. <laughs> There is nothing a ghosting can't do except thread a needle. People are sleeping on the ghostings. Yeah, they are. Which I want to touch on in a minute. But Anur is friends with, I'm not sure how you pronounce, I don't want to mispronounce his name, Kwame. Kwame, yeah. And he's an ember servant. And so then obviously he meets Sila because they're constantly together. I want to find the exact page because I might actually want to read from the book. Yeah, do it. But he seems to be a catalyst for for Scylla to start seeing things in a different way because she seems to have a very, very black and white idea of privilege. And she actually says to him, how does an ember like yourself end up being a servant? And she said, well, I was assigned here. Scylla then assumes that he's incompetent. And he said, no, I just wasn't born into an Emir family. You actually say in the book that she's, she's confused and her sort of inner monologue is they might have luxury but did they truly have freedom and it's like she's finally starting to have her eyes open that it's not ember's bad dust is good there's still layers of privilege within that. yes and this is where intersectionality comes into it i think even in the world that we live in you know the theory of intersectionality is something that has definitely dominated the way that we discuss society now you know it was very much before okay gender is one societal discussion race is another um wealth is another but actually they all converge they all layer up we all have multiple privileges and multiple disadvantages and i think it's nothing's none, nothing is black and white in this world nothing and kwame was absolutely a catalyst for that you even hit the nail on the head because actually it was one of his key um key points of being even a, a character in the book because I don't I don't often like to make characters just to serve a purpose and Kwame did start off that way he came onto the page as just to show Sila how society works and how it's much more complex than you think Kwame I did not account for him being just such a fun character and just growing and growing and then book two he just has his absolute best lives his best best life and I love it um so you know, I, I often find that if I ever try to do anything that serves the plot, the characters become unruly and do what they want, which is great because I love Kwame. But yes, he absolutely was a catalyst. And I think it was so important to make the point about, you know, this is not as simple as, yeah, like you said, Ember's good, and like, um, Dust is good, or even No Work's good, um, which is kind of the slur that's used to encapsulate both ghostings and dusters. Um, against the embers like embers aren't all bad they are people too just because they are born into a certain type of privilege doesn't mean they're not in disadvantaged in other ways such as wealth or status we mentioned Hassa earlier and how she could actually be the chosen one because I think she's probably the MVP for me of the whole thing but again, as much as I was shocked by the bombshell that that Sila wasn't Uka's daughter I was also, my mouth again dropped open when I found out that Hassel was actually mutilated by her own people. Yeah. And I think that's, it was a real brutal realisation as I was writing the story. I was like, aha, huh, okay, this happened. And um, actually, I saw you at the, 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 the Babel launch, so I can talk about this a little bit more because a, a big theme of Babel by Rebecca Kwong is how um, 
the necessity of violence and decolonization and why um you know decolonization is always an act of violence which is based on um france fanon's um the wretched of the earth's um, novel um research which basically talks about how violence is necess- like it's so important because it's the tool of the oppressor and you've got to use the tool of the oppressor in order to to break down what has happened and i think this what is what Hasser and the ghostings what happened to Hasser and what the ghostings did to her was exactly that they had to use the the violence of the oppressor in order to benefit themselves so by mutilating Hasser as a child but keeping her undocumented so she didn't go through the abattoirs um so anyone who hasn't read the book although if you haven't read the book i'm not sure why you're listening to this because this is ruining everything um <laughs> but there are ghosting abattoirs that um children are sent to and documented and so the uh, wardens can keep a number of uh, a record of the number of ghosting babies and also making sure that they have had their tongues cut off and their hands chopped off now what they did with hassa was do that themselves in within the nest which is under underneath the city now that gave them the power to use Hassa as a spy. Hassa could literally wander into any, any house, an Emir household, the, the keep, anywhere as a ghosting, undocumented, and spy without having a role. She was not, you know, no one was taking, no one, there's no photography, no one knows what people look like. Um, and ghostings are very much painted with the same brush. So they are mutilated. Okay, that's a ghosting. Uh, so I think thinking about this metaphor and, and the power of um, violence in decolonization, which, again, I will stress that it's not always physical, but in this case with Hassa, it is physical as a manifestation of that exact tool. It is them taking the violence of the oppressor to take down the world around them, which I think is really important. Does she know? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. She knows. She's aware of it. Um, I... I, I I'm not sure if this actually the scene ended up in the book, but there is a a definite moment where she talks about how she's glad for it because it gives her the community, it gives her the the family that even though it gives her that physical marker of being ghosting, which instantly gives her a community. Yeah, I understand. I understand why they do it because they it gives them the benefit of having her as a spy, and it is using the violence of the oppressor. But it's just I sort of can't. I still don't totally get it. It's just so cruel. I think it's 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 brutal. But if you also see it as ghostings, don't see it as um, because they have adapted so well to their world. I would like to say that this is not. It, it is an ableist world because obviously the caste system um, and the disabilities of the ghostings is part of their racial signifier. It is, however, a world in which accepts disability as just a form of being so it's not it's not horrifying or it's not it doesn't take anything away from who they are which I think sometimes in our world we see disability and I think it's something that we really need to challenge but actually disability is not that it's just another part of of someone um and I think that's what Hassa is representing that she is glad for it she is glad for the you know the the community that she has because of that disability I was thinking more just the pain, like, yeah, just like say going and getting your body oh, piercing yeah. or something like that. That <laughs> hurts, but you want it. Just having your hands cut off yeah. and your tongue cut out, just oh no, yeah. And the and the phantom pain that stays mm. with you for a really long time for the rest of your life, um, yeah. Do you think that it would have ever occurred to the embers or even kind of the dusters that there was a lot of power in the way that the ghostings weren't seen because it does enable them? to put this plan in motion because as you said Hassa can go anywhere as a spy and we start to see glimpses of this plan throughout the book and then at the end kind of all steam ahead with with what's happening I think it's um I think the sleeping sickness was a really interesting subplot that developed while I was writing the novel because it's actually it was very much based on um a sickness that uh went through Africa um, I use the term Africa loosely because obviously it's not a country, um, but the continent in itself, the global south, was um, decimated by a disease when the first uh, Europeans settled on the land, which no one to this day knows really what it was. They called it the sleeping sickness and it was 
it could have been something as simple as the, the common cold, but it, they had no antibodies to um, certain things because Europeans had never been there before. And with it, they brought disease and um, a lot of, a lot of slaves um, would die in the night and wake and, and actually just, and literally just be dead. And it, they'd fall asleep, they'd, they'd die. So it was uh, directly lifted from history. And then I was like, what if that actually, so that happened 421 years ago with the ghostings, but then they just continued the ruse to start getting people out of Nauruta, um, which is the capital. And I think that's where it all started for me. I was like, aha, these these incredible human beings are, are fighting silently and embers have no idea. And embers still have no idea um there is there is, we develop it the storyline obviously develops in book two but there are you know ghostings have been fighting for a really long time it has particularly kicked off in the last 50 years in the world and they are ramping up for a war shall we say i think it's really interesting that you said earlier that one thing that you researched was silence in the real world and people who can't speak the truth and then you have these people who literally cannot speak their truth but it doesn't make the truth go away they just communicate it in different ways to each other yeah absolutely I think um this this novel is so much about truth it's about my own truth about who I am as a person finding my own my own identity it's about how there is so much silence we talk about like history is written by the victors as it's been said time and time again but also history is fictional history is a fictional account of anything that happens because everything you write in history is has a narrative has a and when something has a narrative it has a point of view and so when you view history as fictional you can view fiction as history and I think that's really how I approach the final strife was this kind of sense of reclaiming um giving voice to the voiceless and the ancestors that I have in my past who went through you know, this unbelievable trauma and this generational trauma that still lingers in racism to this day. And so there are so many layers to it. There's the silence of the ghostings. There's my own confrontation of my own silence with myself. There's history and how we approach that. And then also, you know, Sila, Sila running from the truth. How is she how is she confronting what she did in her past? What she the catalyst of what she did to her entire family, and the guilt that comes with that. So, yeah, I think um, silence and truth are very important in in the novel. On page two hundred and fifty, we have I think Turin. I think you pronounced. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's a duster, and she actually tells Sila, and she seems quite proud of this that she actually petitioned to have the ghosting's language taken away, and just her attitude is so callous. Like, oh well, they need feet, so can't have their feet taken away but yeah it's it's so it's so wild to me and it's uh, there's so this is in some ways lifted from an in a kind of real world life event that happened to me I've got a friend of mine who is a gay man in his 60s and he was one of the people who petitioned Mar- Margaret Thatcher on Ar- Article 28 to remove gay uh, adoption rights. And he he was saying, you know, I, I don't think that uh, gay people should uh, adopt. And I'm like, and I remember just looking at him thinking, you're gay, how are you doing this? And it's a bit like that with Turin. It's like, you're a human being. How are you, how are you doing this? How do you have this point of view? And it is really difficult to kind of understand the concept of of bigotry and the concept of taking away in order to lift yourself up. And I, it, it we well, we see it in real life all the time. But uh, it is it it's wild to me. But it was very true. You know, these these people exist in our world, and to be proud of the fact that you have done something so heinous is is really crazy to me. So. Um, yeah <laughs> people like that exist I love the fact that Sila bothered to actually learn the language and someone even asks her she's like oh I needed it to to get the the Joba seeds and they're like there are you don't need to speak the language to get the seeds but 
I almost feel like if she could have learnt their language, she actually would have. Although you you do address the fact that it doesn't work because she has fingers, but I feel like she would have. I wouldn't say it necessarily doesn't it, that it doesn't work. It would work. I think it would be a very difficult sign language to learn because your fingers would almost get in the way, um, and it is so complex. It's three thousand signs, and also because of the ghostings often situation and where they are they can't show emotion on their face which strips a lot of sign language emotion away from what they're saying so I would say it's it's a it's a very complex and difficult language to learn I touch on it very briefly at the end of the novel where Sila goes to see Leo her mother her adoptive mother and Leo says I when we came to Naruto you were silent with grief and maybe one day I'll write the scene because I think it's really interesting. So Sila didn't actually, she couldn't really talk. She didn't speak for, she was numb from the death of her family. Um, she was entirely silent for nearly two years. And in talking and getting to know Hassa, she found her voice again. Um, I don't really labour on that story too much, but I think it's a really interesting one, maybe for a short story in the future. Um, but yeah, so Hassa gave Sila her voice. And I think that's a really important point because technically Hassa doesn't have a voice as we know it. She does on the page, of course, because I give her that voice. But I, I, I love the kind of cyclical nature of like Sila being given her voice back by Hassa. So she learns the ghost and she learns to understand it. Um, she could probably do a few words herself, but it is very complex. So, yeah. And even still, even though she learns to understand it, she she only, I think maybe it's in book two I mentioned this, but Sila realises that she has, has been speaking slowly for her because it is such a uh, an intense language that you have to learn every single subtle movement. Hass has been doing it really slowly for her for the last six years to get her to to understand her. So I think... There is still that barrier there, but I think, you know, she understands as much as she needs to. You might touch on it again in book two, but it's definitely the end of book one when Hassa takes her to meet the the ghosting elders and she's seen them oh, talking yes, yeah. and she's just like, oh my God. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it just feels, it's so sweet that Hassa does that for her. I know. Hassa is literally the best. Um, such a such a great character. I'm so so glad that she really blossomed into the character that she is, and she she is a third of book two. It's a, a third Hassa, a third Nora, and a third Sila. So um, I'm so pleased that that's the case because she really has stolen my heart. Have restrictions in general gotten stricter as time has gone on? Because on page 314, there's th- that really awkward dinner with Anur, Uka and and her grandma the whole idea of freedom of movement comes up and Uka sort of mentions about blood scours and closing off areas of the empire and we see earlier in the book going into the keep when Sila has her blood checked to make sure that she's she's an ember so it does seem like things are only getting worse Yes, so that's twofold. Number one, from the night of the stolen. So since the children were stolen, um, security has gone into overdrive um, and Uka is cracking down on everything. She is rage-filled. She is a grief-stricken mother who is probably the biggest villain in the book, although very complex in many ways as well, um, has, you know, is absolutely... Her reign is far stricter than any other reign um, in terms of the Guild of Strength. So that's the armies and the, the essentially the police force. Um, secondly, and I can talk about this because it's spoilers, um, the Zalam, who are very briefly mentioned, are, um, are rising. That's all you get to hear from the kind of what's happening outside the world. Um, but there is a messengers coming from across the water you don't know where, but they're arriving and um, with them comes the message that the Zalam are rising and that in turn gives Uka the knee-jerk reaction to close down the borders even more. Like, how do we contain... Because as soon as the secret's out that the world exists out there, the warden's reign is over. And so um, it's definitely a a self-contained 
defensive tool. One of the last questions I have for you is why is Uka so determined that Anur should quit or fail? I sort of had three theories on on why that could be. I want to hear your theories. <laughs> well, the first one I think is probably quite obvious that people that she'll get injured and people will see her blood. And then it'll be like, ah, that's not actually your child. Your child was stolen, which she seems to have this insane fear about people knowing, which is the whole reason she didn't kill Anur in the first place. Part of me thinks she's concerned that Anur won't win and could shame her because her Uka's mom was the Warden of Strength and then Uka has been. So if she does certain challenges and just does really badly, then it might not reflect well. But and I thought this was probably my most interesting theory. It's a fear that she might actually do it and that she's a, dust, a duster could achieve that. Absolutely. You've, na- you've nailed it. It's all three reasons because... From an instinct re- reaction and a self-preservation reaction, um, Uka does not want her to compete because if she bleeds, Uka's done for. And not only that, the it puts the entire Warden's Empire at risk because a blue-blooded duster has been living in the keep for 20-odd years. Secondly, a fear that she'll look terrible. Yes, Uka's made it quite clear in public that... Um, that Anor doesn't meet her standards in terms of fitness and regime and being ready to take over the Guild of Strength. So um, it does embarrass her, absolutely, that if she doesn't do well. And then I agree that this is the most interesting reason and probably the biggest reason. She has a fear of Anor actually doing it and winning. And I think that is probably the biggest driver of fear because... If she becomes the first duster disciple, who only her mother knows that she's a a duster, what will that do to the Empire? What will her ideals do to the Empire? Not only will she then be a duster who can take down Uka, she's a duster who can take down every single piece of history that they have spent years building up. So yeah, absolutely, I think you've nailed it with those three reasons. So obviously if Anur bleeds, she would be blue. Bleed blue. That's that's a hard thing to say. <laughs> and she wears a lot of blue. Yes. And she seems to almost reclaim the colour blue for herself. Yeah, I think that was... Um, it was a really interesting one for me because um, I know as a black person, I've been told that the colour brown is disgusting, it's ugly, it's not something that I should ever wear. And that for me was why Anur absolutely reclaims it. Also, interestingly, which I think is something that very rarely happens in any fantasy novel, is uh, Anur gets her period, (laughs) like most women who bleed do. So she needs to protect herself in case she gets her period when, uh, you know, she is not anywhere near home. Although, to be fair, she's always near home. Um, She could be on the other side of the keep. She hasn't got any pads with her. Well okay, she needs to wear blue because if someone sees her bleeding, well, that's game over. So um, I really wanted to kind of draw attention to that because first of all, um, and this actually, that scene where she does get her period is quite quite, um, a recent addition. So just bear in mind, I'd had about 11 drafts of the final strife. Um, When I kind of came to the realisation, women never have periods in fantasy books. And I really wanted to draw draw kind of the attention to that so um and remind you know the world that that exists it's like how characters sometimes don't eat or go to the toilet um we don't need to write down every time but just like let's remind people that they are human um so yeah so that was something that I wanted to 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 just talk about because it affects how her blue blood affects every single part of her life is is really interesting I mean no straight white man straight white old man probably <laughs> writing epic fantasy is going to be thinking about that yeah and think hmm, I wonder I wonder if one of my female characters would get her period they're not it's not even gonna cross their mind no. so I love the fact that you added that yeah. because for men reading it it probably won't mean much but I think for women who read it it's I feel like almost an empowering thing to actually see it on the page yeah yeah absolutely and who fancied for who first out of Anura and Sila? Oh, um, definitely Sila fancied Anur first. I think she might not have recognised it as that. 
Um, but definitely Sila had the hots for Anur first. So I know she noticed her body and sort of she complimented her on it. Yeah. That's kind of like, hmm, okay. Yes. I I see you. Very early on. Yeah. <laughs> they were so when it finally happened and you see Anur be upset about things. Yeah. You see her when she sees Sila and John. It's like, oh, oh. Sweet child, it will happen. Don't worry. <laughs> it, yeah, they, they both deserve it so much. And I hope it works out for them. I know same Sila, that Anur feels a bit betrayed by Sila, but I hope it works out for them. Same. It's in your hands. I know. <laughs> I think it will. I think it will. <laughs> we'll see. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to me today about The Final Strife. I loved the book so much. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. This has been so much fun to talk about spoilers as well. Well, which guild do you think you would try for, just out of interest? Oh, do you know what? I'd fail at all of them. Um, I, I think I'd, I'd just have to, like, offer loot a favour and just join the, the Guild of Crime because I would <laughs> fail every other test. I can't do maths. I am not strong. I'm not clever. <laughs> can't do tax no I would absolutely um have to just offer a favor to loot and be like yeah well I'll join the guild of crime I like the idea of the knowledge one and then it's like right so they have to dissect stuff I was like nope yes I know absolutely no no way hard hard pass no can't do I can't do body stuff like I like really gruesome horror films but anything to do with like medical and dissection no yeah absolutely not but I am so excited for the sequel and I bought my aunt a copy of the book, as you know, because you signed it for her as well. And as soon as she finished it, she messaged me, can't wait for the sequel. It's like, yeah, it's a trilogy. And so <laughs> you've made her very happy as yeah. well. So when can we expect, And well, there is a release date on Amazon, but you might have a better idea. When can we expect it? And what can you tease us about it? Sea monsters, yellow bloods. Yeah, that's people coming from the outside. Yes, that's that's pretty much all I can tell you. So there are so in terms of the really release date, um, Amazon probably has it right. I think it's maybe May next year. It is done. Um, I'm just going through um, line edits, copy edits, and so hopefully I can announce the title soon and um, the cover and all that exciting stuff. But yeah, literally we're talking about nine months, ten months time. Not very long. But yes, there is a sea monster, there is a voyage, there is uh, yellow bloods, there are, um, there's another love interest, not for Sila, I will say, I'm not going to break all your hearts quite yet. Um, We also interestingly hear a lot more from Jond, which I think is really fun. So um, yeah, let's that's that's all I'm gonna say. That's fine, <laughs> and it will explain to me why she left John alive because I was like, mm, I don't get it. I would have been tempted. I'm petty, so I think I would have been like, you know what? Oh, she was tempted. In in one iteration, she kills him, and then I was like, this doesn't work actually. Um, and actually, in one iteration, she kills John and keeps Loot alive, and I was like, no, it's still not right. Ooh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. One of the actually it was quite a late draft that Luke was still alive. He he died. He came back. He died again. Came back, and then I was like, no, no, he needs to die. <laughs> Do, apart from the sequel, which is ready, and there's going to be a third part yes. at some point because it is a trilogy. Do you have any plans that you can talk about? Uh, not that I can talk about. I have got another trilogy in the works. I can't tell you anything about it. <laughs> I'm happy knowing it exists, exists. to be honest. I'm happy about that. It is another epic fantasy um, and it exists. Well, it it will when I finished it, but it is, it's in the, it's in the works. It will exist. Yeah. And I really hope to be able to talk about it more soon. Well, you know, you are, you know, we want you to come back (laughs) and talk about the future ones because I, I, I just need to talk spoilers. Yes, it's it's so much fun, and I can't wait to talk spoilers about book two because there are a lot of things to talk about. Actually, well, we will see you for book two. How can people follow you, support you, find out about? 
plans for the sequel and this other trilogy when it happens? Um, I am on all social media, Sarah at Sarah Elarifi. Um, that's S W A R A E L A R I F I. Website is sarahelarifi.com and there is a contact us form if you need anything desperately from me, though I'm very terrible at getting back from things. So yeah, just, you know, follow me on all those channels and uh, hopefully you will learn more news soon. We'll put links to all of that in our episode description to make it really easy for people to find you. Awesome. Thanks for hanging out with us today. And again, a special thanks to Sarah. Follow us on Instagram at demythifyingthepodcast. And if you like what we're doing, please rate us and subscribe. Also, check out our website at www.demithpod.co.uk. I've been Lauren, and today I've been turning pages with Sarah Elarifi.